Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Ben and Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica. Um, we have a great show for you today. Please be seated. Um, when the Senate comes back from its recess this August, it's going to jump right away into hearings on, on President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, um, D.C. Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, we have with us from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who's been a great friend of the show, Camille Fisher. And uh, she's with the she's the Frank Stanton Fellow um, with the EFF. And she's she, along with several of her EFF colleagues, have written and recently published an article questioning Kavanaugh about digital privacy and net neutrality that kind of outlines a, bunch, a series of questions that the committee members should should explore with Judge Kavanaugh on his record and on certain key issues. And so we're, we're glad to have Camille with us to talk about um, Judge Kavanaugh's record. Camille, are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. Nice Thank to you. be on. Thank you for joining us. And Camille is a fellow um, Hoya lawyer graduating from Georgetown Law Center. And um, just so... And for our listeners, you can, um, the show notes for today's show is as usual at our um, blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and follow us at cyberlawradio on Twitter. So um, we have a new wrinkle in the whole nomination process for Judge Kavanaugh, and that being with the conviction of um, the guilty plea of um, Michael Cohen, where he implicates President Trump. You have this cloud of illegitimacy hanging over the Trump presidency. And just this morning, you had um, Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono saying that she's canceled my meeting with Judge Kavanaugh at, at real Donald Trump, who is an unindicted co-conspirator in a criminal matter, does not deserve the courtesy of a meeting with his nominee, purposely selected to protect, as we say in Hawaii, his own okole. And um, so it's... It, creates uh, a, another element to what is somewhat of a, a strange um, nomination process already. And uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. You know, I mean, it's been an incredibly strange nomination process. Um, I think that, I mean, what we're increasingly seeing over the last two years is uh, significant distrust in the U.S. government as a whole. Um, and so whether it's um, 
in this nomination process because some of Kavanaugh's records haven't been released to the full Senate or whether it's because the president who has nominated him um, raises significant questions for some people about his um, about his actions uh, and his like cons- and his um, his lawyer and his campaign chairman's uh, actions. Um, it. It seems it seems like it seems that there needs to be a uh, larger release of records and uh, a greater public process and transparency around the nomination um, to kind of bring back that trust. So let's let's back up just a little bit. Um, you know, well, I think what was Senator Hirono is referring to is some of um, Judge Kavanaugh's statements on the executive power and that in particular um, questioning whether a president can be subject to lawsuits or even criminal investigation and his openly questioning the decision in the U.S. Let me should rephrase that, the unanimous decision of the Supreme Court in U.S. v. Nixon where the court ordered Nixon to comply with a subpoena for the tapes that ultimately led to Nixon resigning. Um, and I think you know, there's suspicion that one of the plus factors for Kavanaugh being selected by President Trump was that if, if his um, battle with the independent counsel ever goes to the Supreme Court, he's going to have a friendly judge on the Supreme Court. I mean, definitely. There's always – it's always a little weary when one branch of government uh, – gives too much deference to another. Um, so to have a judge on the Supreme Court that um, could potentially uh, give more deference than uh, than judges have in the past to the executive branch um, is troubling. Um, I mean, one of the foundational principles of the American rule of law is that is stare decisis and the fact that judges should apply and continue uh, the legal tradition and the rulings of the Supreme Court justices before them. Um, so it would be it will be really interesting to see how Kavanaugh kind of squares that up when he, if he uh, becomes a member of the court. And and one thing I, I take away from that is if you're willing to question. Uh, a unanimous ruling of the Supreme Court. And that to me suggests that you're this was someone who could be a potential potentially be a judicial activist. That if you know if even something like that is not settled law to him, then you know everything's open game. But uh, let's go let's also uh, let's back up a little bit too and go over uh, a little bit about his background and which also comes into play as to some of the procedural controversy we're having now. Um, so Judge Kavanaugh, uh, who I think it was um, Senator Durbin in his first confirmation hearing called the, um, the Z-League of Republican politics. He's he, uh, uh, a graduate of Yale. Actually, he's a Beltway, Beltway veteran since he grew up in Bethesda. Uh, graduated from Yale, went to work for... Um, the Bush, the first Bush administration, for Solicitor General Ken Starr. Then he clerks with um, Justice Kennedy, who he may is now seeking to um, you know replace. And um, 
And then from there, he joins Starr again uh, at the Independent Counsel's office, where he actually helped write the Starr report, making the case for impeachment of Bill Clinton. Um, he then jumps to a, a D.C. law firm where he's actually involved in the Elaine Gonzalez um, matter and even the 2000 Florida recount. He jumps back to the, the second Bush White House as an associate counsel uh, and then eventually as staff counsel, as the, uh, excuse me, staff secretary, where he is the lawyer that um, before every decision is made, making make sure the process has been followed and that whatever paperwork you know, the president needs to implement uh, whatever decision he's made, it, it, it goes through him. And uh, and so he he was involved in a, that was a period a very controversial period during the Bush administration, and um, when he was first you know, he was then later nominated for a DC circuit position, and uh, his his nomination was held up for a couple of years in part because of concerns uh, about whether he was being truthful in saying that he was not involved in any deliberations in the Bush administration over um, the, um, the detentions at Guantanamo Bay and the uh, torture policies, and um, which later would turned out not to be the case, that he actually had been involved. But that was only after he was confirmed. So you know, that's the background. This is the guy who's been involved in practically everything. He was actually at the White House and on 9-11. So, I mean, all these major events happened in, you know, from... The, the the early 90s to um, 2006 before he went when he was finally confirmed you know he was kind of at the epicenter of what was going on in Republican politics and uh, and so he gets confirmed and goes to the DC circuit where he's been now um, for 12 years and so in addition to evaluating his record there's a big question now about allowing the, you know, the senator's access to his records during the Bush administration and during uh, the Clinton's the nominations under President Obama for Justice Kagan and even Justice Sotomayor. Um, for Justice Sotomayor, they went to great extents even get um, board meetings of nonprofit organizations she'd been involved with um, so that they can have the minutes of those meetings available and Kagan I think it, you know, 95, 95% of her records were produced. And we're at a position now with Kavanaugh when it's only 10% of those records have been produced, and one-third of which have been designated confidential for committee members only. But they haven't requested the records relating to his period as staff secretary for President Bush. And yeah. What, what's, oh. your, what are you, what's your take on that? I mean... So I have to be a little careful because EFF is a nonpartisan organization. Sure. Um, but I mean, but we support transparency uh, and government oversight, and it does seem like there's a huge discrepancy in the release of Kagan and Sotomayor's records. Um, I know that Kagan, she worked uh, as White House Counsel for President Clinton, um, and I think only three percent of her records were withheld during the confirmation process. Um, I think that it, the number could be even less than that. Um, and for for uh, Kavanaugh's staff secretary records to not be released to the Senate um, as like a full body, 
uh, and to the public, um, it raises major questions, not only for government transparency, but for the deference um, that we would give one administration over another, um, which, um, I mean, they just, they don't square up with each other. And it does make this conversation, this confirmation process seem a bit more like political circus. But but he's also said that, you know, some of his views are informed by his work during that period. And if we're not getting access to that, and, and it's not as if the in the issues that he dealt with during that era, it's not as if those issues aren't going to be relevant to today just because it's you know a number of years later. you know, um, torture, um, you know, Fourth Amendment issues of detention, um, even you know some of the issues in the Bush administration on uh, women's right to choose and other things. you know those are all going to be relevant in his confirmation battle. And uh, I'd like to, give you a quote um, with respect to uh, Kagan's uh, confirmation. Uh, In order for the Senate to fulfill its constitutional responsibility of advising consent, we must get all her documents from the Clinton Library, have enough time to analyze them so we can determine whether she should be a justice. And that was Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley in 2010. Um, but now he's obviously taking a different position. So it's somewhat frustrating, I think, and I, I agree with you on that position. The other thing that's with somewhat procedurally that's somewhat interesting is that um, you know here we have a rush to hold the hearings and get him confirmed um, before the midterm elections, whereas um, and two years ago we were told that we couldn't confirm someone so close to elections. And... Um, you know, President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, was nominated 237 days before the election, whereas Kavanaugh was a mere 119 days. And so all of a sudden, one is okay and the other one's not. So those, I think those are some of the, the tensions that already have created um, you know, doubt on, the administ- on this nomination just because of the, it's become politicized just by that alone. I mean, exactly. I um, To be like... <laughs> Fully, to fully disclose, I was actually in the Obama White House during Merrick Garland's nomination and uh, the Senate's failure to confirm. And so this is a little bit of a um, heartburn issue for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can imagine. Now, um, jumping into the substance, though, um, we have a number of issues that you and the, your fellow EOF, EFF colleagues laid out. Um, asking questions about what he should be asked um, in the confirmation process, and you know, and despite the absence of certain r- records from his Bush era um, work, I mean the judge does have twelve years of you know, published opinions, and uh, and I think the one area that that jumps out to a lot of people in the tech community is net neutrality. And what's your view on um, what what we can glean from um, the judge's net neutrality opinion? Um, I mean, definitely the the net neutrality of his net neutrality opinion is really interesting for a bunch of different reasons. Um, 
I mean, so he did issue the dissenting opinion. Um, and so thankfully, the D.C. circuit majority um, is what uh, upheld the 2015 Open Internet Order, um, arguing that it uh, holding that the Open Internet Order wasn't arbitrary or capricious. Um, what really stands out to me in uh, Kavanaugh's dissenting opinion is his, I mean, his ruling on or his interpretation of the First Amendment. Um, in net neutrality, you have um, two competing uh, First Amendment interests, the interest of uh, the ISPs that Kavanaugh uh, supports in uh, carrying content uh, through their, uh, through over their infrastructure. Um, but then you also have the First Amendment rights of people online. Um, and the way that Kavanaugh has chosen to balance those rights, um, I think is really interesting um, and will will shed light on if he is confirmed to the Supreme Court. Um, the way he uh, will balance uh, corporate speech versus individual speech. And just just to highlight the procedural posture of that rule is dissent. The um, this was a case of which the the Obama era open internet order had been affirmed um, by the D.C. Circuit in 2016. And now there was a petition to have a, an en banc review of the entire D.C. Circuit. Um, that review, that request was denied. Kavanaugh dissented, and, you know, one, um, and, and two major grounds, one of which was the First Amendment. And I, I saw an article that addressed his First Amendment argument. Um, Gigi San um, wrote, wrote a piece that, and she had worked with um, FCC Chairman Wheeler, and she said that his view that somehow, um, I think his language was that um, because you know, TV stations can air ESPN and they can air content, then ISPs are the same and they should be able to choose whether or not to broadcast ESPN just like TV companies can choose broadcast ESPN. And uh, he they thought that this was a, a kind of a fringe of First Amendment jurisprudence, and it just it, it ignored the role of being a uh, public provider in in this space. I think the her quote was, "For 85 years, First Amendment rights on network operators like ISPs, broadcasters, and cable operators have always balanced the, with the rights of the public." And Kavanaugh's ascension to the bench could start the mainstreaming of a legal theory that would all but eviscerate the public's rights with regard to networks that use of public rights of way and by law are required to serve the republic. And um, so it, he was really out there on the First Amendment. And he is, I mean, he is really out there, especially when you consider um, kind of the technical distinctions between uh, broadcast television com cable companies yeah. and telephone and ISPs. Um, so broadcast companies, they actually have to pay for the content that they choose to then offer as packages. 
Um, so, uh, so when you like have a direct TV subscription, um, direct TV actually has to like pay for HBO and pay for HGTV. Um, whereas telephone companies, they don't do that. Uh, internet companies certainly don't pay out subsidies to Netflix and to New York times, uh, for the hosting of the content. So there's actually, um, that his idea that there is choice, um, within what ISPs carry is kind of detached from the like marketplace reality that happens in the cable context. He was also criticized. He also took the position that um, there really was uh, no authority that Congress hadn't, there was no, Congress hadn't specified authority for the FCC to take the action and, and ignoring a Supreme Court decision that held uh, that that there was authority to regulate in the space, and uh, so that was also troubling to some. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that is a common thread in some of his opinions, um, which I mean, it's why I think the legal community has uh, quite a few concerns uh, about his nomination. Um, still hoping that he will, if confirmed to the bench, that he will apply the law uh, the way that justices are supposed to do. Um, but his his lower court opinions um, just, I mean, they raise a lot of concerns for that. Another big area, and, and by the way, we should point out that if confirmed, Judge Kavanaugh would be the second youngest justice on the court. Um, only one younger is... <laughs> the, the latest Justice, Justice Gorsuch. <laughs> yeah. So you have you know Trump nominating the, the the two youngest justices on the Supreme Court who who could be there for thirty years, and um, so um, so he's been criticizing net neutrality. But then one of the area you guys tackled was in privacy. Um, well, take us through your view of his uh, jurisprudence in that area. Yeah, um, I mean, so he has to, Oren Kerr has um, established a few more Fourth Amendment cases, but as far as uh, Kavanaugh's Fourth Amendment um, and privacy, Fourth Amendment and digital rights uh, jurisprudence, he has two main cases. So he authored a dissenting opinion and uh, U.S. v. Maynard, which is actually U.S. v. Jones, uh, it went to the Supreme Court as U.S. v. Jones, and he um, he authored a um, he authored a concurrence in uh, the D.C. Circuit's decision to not take up a rehearing in Clayman, which is the NSA uh, Section 215 uh, case. Um, so. I mean, so it's uh, privacy in two different landscapes. So there's a law enforcement privacy and national security privacy. So I'm going to start with law enforcement. Um, In Kavanaugh's opinion in Maynard, Richard Jones, um, I mean, his dissenting opinion, um, he strongly supports... I think it was dissenting. He strongly... It was dissenting, yeah. Okay. Um, He strongly supports a property-based theory um, for... For, for searches, um, which is actually what you see Scalia take up in uh, Scalia's opinion in Jones. However, the plurality in Jones um, upholds the reasonable expectation of privacy 
and actually discusses the long-term privacy intrusions of persistent surveillance that was conducted through the GPS monitoring. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's a little... It's a little concerning that he dismissed the reasonable expectation of privacy, that he wants to ground um, law enforcement intru- privacy intrusions um, solely in the in the property theories. Um, what I mean, so the latest case that the Supreme Court has ruled on this in this area is Carpenter. Um, Carpenter supports. Um, the plurality in Jones uh, articulating that the long-term um, collection of records is uh, increases privacy harms um, and is therefore considered a search. Um, and so I'd be interested in seeing how Kavanaugh squares his opinion in his DC Circuit opinion in Jones with the recent ruling in Carpenter. Um, we're well, gonna, we gonna take a short break right now. We'll come back to Carpenter and the Jones ruling as well as the claimant opinion after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on Webmaster Radio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Content Marketing World 2018 comes to Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Learn more at contentmarketingworld.com. Content Marketing World 2018 is the one event where you will learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry. Content Marketing World will have over 120 sessions and workshops presented by the leading brand marketers and experts from around the world covering strategy, storytelling, ROI, demand generation, AI, and more. Leave Cleveland with all the materials you need to build a content marketing plan that will grow your business and inspire your audience. Save $100 off of registration using promo code radio That's radio and the number 100. Don't miss Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Register now at contentmarketingworld.com. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th through the 18th. Learn more at MiamiBookFair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions for the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair. Another November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. WebmasterRadio.fm. Welcome to the place your competitors get their edge. Jump on it. We're here for you 24-7. 
The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and just a brief shout-out. Happy 79th birthday to Boston legend Carl Yastrzemski. And um, But before we broke, we were talking about the ruling in U.S. v. Jones and subsequent Supreme Court decision um, that relied on all kind of a privacy-based um, determination of, uh, of a property-based determination on prop- privacy. Because in, in that case, in Jones involved the use of a, a GPS device to track someone's car over an extended week, several weeks, I think, um, in, vi- in, outside, in violation of the terms of the uh, warrant that they had. And then he ultimately it was overturned by, by saying that, in, you know, not because of the privacy interest of the individual, but because it had been intruded the, the property of the car in which you know the defendant was was using and uh, so you, you were just talking about that and carp in the latest decision supreme court decision in carpenter yes um so in joe as you said in jones um there is um this the facts uh create kind of like a strong property theory that uh the police affixed a gps tracker to uh someone's car their physical property and then uh, tracked them for a period of time. So Scalia's um, Scalia's opinion in Jones uh, actually draws on some of Kavanaugh's um, property, draws on a similar uh, theory that Kavanaugh wrote in his dissenting in the D.C. Circuit um, that the property interest actually constitute the uh, help establish the search but the plurality uh, with Sotomayora and Justice Alito um, still upholds and supports uh, the reasonable expectation of privacy theory that um, has been part of um, the U.S. Fourth Amendment jurisprudence since the 70s um, and so uh, the Supreme Court's latest ruling in Carpenter I mean, the facts are just very different. Um, and so um, in Carpenter, uh, the law enforcement went to a uh, thir- to a telecommunications service provider to get all of the historic cell site location records um, of, of the criminal defendant. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, the Supreme Court held that these detailed long-term records of a person is constitutes a Fourth Amendment search, even though these records are held by a third party. Um, so you don't actually have that same kind of property interest that you would in U.S. v. Jones, where someone has actually affixed something to, um, to your physical, uh, to a physical object that you own. Um, and so I think it would be really interesting to see how Carpenter, to see how Kavanaugh actually kind of like squares up his opinion in in Jones that supports the property theory with with what you see in the modern world where people don't necessarily have complete control of the data or of the property and there are these kind of like quasi-ownership schemes with with companies. Um, So some of the questions that we'd want to ask Kavanaugh are, I mean, 
do you believe in the reasonable expectation of privacy or do you think it's a failed experiment as Justice Thomas said in uh, his dissent in the Carpenter opinion or um, or have him expound on his view on property because in uh, Justice Gorsuch's uh, dissent in the Kavanaugh pen- in the Carpenter opinion um he expe- he supported um, a property theory that act- that goes a little bit further than uh, Sc- than the one that Scalia articulated in Jones. Um, but I actually think uh, one huge question um, of how user rights and this property theory don't necessarily mesh is within terms of service agreements. Um, and how does and does Kavanaugh actually view the ability to con? Does Kavanaugh think that people can contract away the privacy rights? Essentially, right. and that's going to be an important decision, especially as we move forward with states enacting different various privacy laws as well. Now, in a, a related case in the privacy is is his ruling in Clayman which involved uh, a review of the National Security Agency's warrantless mass telephone surveillance program. And as as a side point, um, because Kavanaugh said during his confirmation process that he had not been involved in these issues when he was Staff Secretary for President Bush, um, he did not um, just... He did not recuse himself from any of these type of cases as they came before him. And so I think, you know, whatever the record is on whether or not he was involved in these issues while he was with the Bush administration raises questions about whether he should have recused himself um, because of that past involvement. But in any event, so in claiming you have a case that comes before him regarding the collection of telephony metadata. Um, tell us about that ruling. Yeah, so in uh, Clayman, the procedural posture is a little weird, um, but uh, where Kavanaugh actually issued his kind of concurring opinion was um, the Clayman uh, requested a rehearing on uh, Bank from the DC Circuit. Uh, the DC Circuit denied. Um, and they just issued, I think, like a one-sentence order denying the rehearing. But Kavanaugh actually issued this like two-page concurring opinion on the denial of rehearing. Um, and the two—I mean, for two pages, he actually he packs a lot in there. Um, and I think these two pages are probably the most concerning for all privacy advocates in Kavanaugh's uh, nomination. Uh, so first, uh, Kavanaugh holds that because of the third-party doctrine, um, the NSA telephony metadata program is perfectly legal and in um, and in con- uh, and abides by the Fourth Amendment. Could you explain um, the third-party doctrine for our, our listeners? Yeah. So the third-party doctrine is this doctrine from the 1970s. Um, and it actually goes back to uh, a case, uh, Smith v. Maryland, where um, where the government requested the numbers that someone put in on the telephone from the telephone company. 
Um, and so the third party doctrine essentially establishes that if you willingly give over information to a third party, to a company like AT&T or to, um, to any telephone service provider, that uh, you have given up your privacy rights because they actually have control of that information and the government and the government can request that information from these third party providers without a warrant. Um, and so Kavanaugh believes uh, in the NSA context that because you dial numbers on your cell phone and AT&T and Verizon track how long you have called people, how often you have called people and have detailed records of this, that that information that you have given over to your telephone service provider, um, you have willingly, willingly done so and that the government doesn't need a warrant for it. Um, and. And that, I mean, that's troubling. Uh, luckily, uh, the case, uh, the Wooling and Carpenter that just happened, um, kind of chips away at this third-party doctrine uh, viewpoint. So the cell site location information uh, in Carpenter was held by telephone service providers, um, the same as the telephone numbers in Smith v. Maryland. But the court, the Supreme Court in Carpenter um, distinguished the two cases and said that because of the modern world and because of how much information is collected, it creates a much higher privacy harm. Um, and so it will be interesting to see how Kavanaugh views the third party doctrine in light of uh, the Carpenter opinion. And, and especially because he's going to be on the court with eight justices who just authored this opinion. Right. Um, and so will he actually like defer to his colleagues' wisdom? Um, but the thing that actually concerns me more about uh, Kavanaugh's opinion in Clayman um, is that he ruled that even if that even if it would be considered a search for the NSA to get records from a third party that the government's special needs um, to uh, monitor the national security of the nation overrules the privacy the individual privacy harms um, and I that is and I mean, that is an over-expansive um, view of this doctrine, which hasn't been fully fleshed out and I think concerns a lot of privacy advocates in our more modern world where um, the intelligence community has, um, has these vast capabilities um, since, the, since the Patriot Act. Um, and... The, I mean, the the big question is, is like, what is not a special need for national security? Right. Um, can, can the intelligence community and even law enforcement just essentially do whatever as long as they articulate special needs? And he, he has been criticized on this point, both from the left and the right. Um, Senator Wyden, you know, a Democrat from Oregon, said that um, – you know, his decisions on mass surveillance and warrantless tracking of Americans' every move are out of step with both the Fourth Amendment and the court's recognition that digital devices are different. And then um, Republican Congressman Justin Amish says, um, future decisions on the constitutional government surveillance will be huge. We can't afford a rubber stamp for the executive branch. And in, in, in this sense, in the context of you know, those privacy rulings and the net neutrality rulings, 
um, as well as the immigration rulings, which I don't know if you've looked at, but um, that had led the um, San Jose Mercury to conclude that um, Justice Kavanaugh would be a disaster for the technology industry and users of tech products. If, I mean, so justices can always surprise you. Um, True. Eisenhower appointed both Warren and, um, oh, Warren and someone else. Um, and Brennan. Brennan. And um, I mean, he expected them to be conservatives. And here they were uh, issuing in like the liberal anti, um, really anti-police abuse um, kind of heyday of the Supreme Court. Um, and so Kavanaugh could always surprise you. However, I think someone's past actions and past speech, um, if you'd consider their opinion speech, um, is is kind of indicative of their thoughts and where they'll go in the future. And so, I mean, based entirely on his past actions, it is he it is a bit terrifying, um, especially because of um, his views on the special needs doctrine. Um, I mean, on things like the third party doctrine and on like the property based theories of um, of privacy, uh, I, th- I, I, you can be comforted in a way that Carpenter has already come out, and Carpenter has really kind of like set the stage for where the Supreme Court is in this current moment. And so the question will be: uh, Will Kavanaugh um, help the Supreme Court continue to shape this area of jurisprudence, or will he um, be kind of like a stumbling block and help slow it down? Um, one stumbling block we have is we have to take a short break when we come back we'll, be, we'll have more on Justice Kavanaugh's nomination after these messages you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors the Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for its 7th Annual International Mobile Web Award Competition. This award program is an opportunity for mobile developers to demonstrate their expertise in this growing medium. It recognizes the individual and team achievements of web professionals all over the world who create and maintain outstanding responsive and mobile websites and mobile applications. Deadline for entry is September 28, 2018. Submit your entry today at www.mobile-webaward.org. That's mobile-webaward.org. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let webmasterradio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. Webmasterradio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Webmasterradio.fm. Get addicted. Get ahead. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking about the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to be Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. 
And uh, we've been talking about um, this is views on privacy as well as his net neutrality rulings. And um, Camille, have you looked at the, his immigration rulings at all? I actually haven't. Um, I have your article pulled up um, <laughs> about immigration. Um, I mean, basically, he took the position that uh, you know illegal immigrants, for in a labor law context, that were not were not persons. They they did not count. And it, it involves a case that had uh, had certified and voted to elect a union, and then it turned out that there were uh, legal immigrants in the workforce. So he said, therefore, the election was invalid. Uh, and in doing so, he he kind of ignored um, president. Um, and that's the other troubling part is there there seems to be a repeated um, ignoring of presidents. But one thing one area you did touch on was in competition law. And then there, he's also being um, criticized for being, uh, in both cases, he approved mergers that um, he had a a very deferential view to the business and ignored arguments that that in terms of the merger um, being anti-competitive. Yeah. I mean, so competition is an area that EFF has recently started to get into um, just because every issue that we work on, whether it's privacy or um, copyright rights or, I mean, free speech rights online, um, the kind of large, the rise of large technology players is, um, I mean, truly impacting individual user rights online. And so Kavanaugh's deference to the companies over the American marketplace or the American consumer um, is, I mean, it's troubling. Even in his net neutrality ruling, I mean, he essentially says that the only thing that will um, kind of usurp the company's free speech rights and carrying whatever they want to on the internet or doing whatever they want to with their service is if you can truly show that uh, ISPs are in a geographic monopoly. However, I think he also um, supports the idea that wireless internet service uh, can compete with wireline broadband service. Um, and I mean, there are tons of economists that show that these those just completely separate services. They're uh, servicing a different need in a different market. Sure. Um, and so, I mean, antitrust is so fact dependent on like what uh, particular uh, economist you can get on your side. But it, I mean, it is troubling that as we continue down to barrel down this path where large technology companies are kind of gobbling up data um, and don't always like share very well with each other um, and are rather than allowing new entrants into the market, just buying them up. Right. Um, it, I think antitrust is the kind of area of law that has the potential to like most shape our future. Um, and it, it is kind of troubling that the uh, that Kavanaugh has so fully supported the companies. We we actually had a guest on our show recently talk about you know because 
the the role of antitrust in tech has become a hot button issue, and, and as in, as evidenced by the fact that EFF is now focusing on it, and um, and that it, there's a history of basically you know, antitrust enforcement actually leading to innovation by breaking up these behemoths. You you, you know you spin off companies that are now free to compete, and it led to, through our history, it's led to greater innovation and. You know, we're at this point now where you have you know a very few companies controlling, you know, the main components of the the internet infrastructure and internet system, and uh, you know there's a danger in that. I mean, there is a danger of that in that. Um, I mean, so Microsoft actually was um, hit by some of the uh, early day antitrust and tech suits. Um, and it's why we have like such competition in the software industry. Um, and I mean, what I think is going to be increasingly troubling is competition within the AI marketplace um, because AI so heavily relies on large uh, large data sets to train an algorithm. Um, and that's why, and if you don't have competition, you're going to continue seeing things like Amazon's facial recognition program that uh, misidentifies black congressmen or that kind of loops um, racial minorities all into one category or, I mean, the early reports from Google where Google was matching um, African-American persons with uh, with primates. Um, Jesus. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's terrifying. And, like, you need... You need competition so that these things, so that companies have the incentive to be better, um, and so that these things don't happen. And, and so, we only have a few minutes left. In 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 general, we if you had one question for Judge Kavanaugh, what what would your question be? Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, my question. So my question would kind of go back to executive power. Um, and would go back to the special needs doctrine and it would just ask him at what point do you think that the American like the individual American interest outweighs the overarching national security interest Um, because the way that the constitution was set up and the way that the fourth amendment is set up is that the individual interests should override the interests of the state Um, and I think and, that he misbalances um, the way we set up our government. Which is which is ironic because you know, basically the whole um, Federalist Society, Heritage Foundation type justices are you know wear this mantle of original intent, and you know the whole Fourth Amendment, even the you know what the, the Fifth and the the being drawn and quartered and all those um, you know having to house troops. I forget what amendment that is, but. You know their their reaction to excessive government authority, and and uh, and to be so deferential to a large state, um, given these rights, is it seems would seem to be inconsistent with someone who says he's following original intent. It I mean it very much does. It actually um, it raises questions for me why Senator Paul hasn't. Um, publicly question Kavanaugh's record more um, because Senator Paul um, has been a champion for this kind of originalist intent and um, 
individual rights over rights of the state, uh, especially in the Fourth Amendment context. Um, and I mean, questions by the Heritage uh, Center um, and large Repub- conservative, maybe libertarian groups um, are actually putting forth a nominee that is so so entrenched in the idea of executive power and executive privilege. I mean, if, am I correct if I'm wrong? Was he involved with, did he opine or was he behind some of the Bush signing statements where, you know, you could sign a law and then issue a statement with more or less overriding congressional intent? He is. Um, I'm not sure. So I'm not sure to the extent that he did so in Bush, but he has been on the record saying that if, uh, if the president finds something to be unconstitutional, a law to be unconstitutional, then the president had the full authority just to not enforce the law, um, which, I mean, raises huge concerns for the, the American checks and balance system. Um, right, and the, the oath of office to faithfully uphold the law. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, there is that minor detail. Um, but So we only have a few minutes left. If, if people want to learn more about you and what you're doing at the EFF, where should they go? Um, so you can go to our website. It's EFF.org. Um, we have been uh, a champion of digital rights since the 90s. Um, so if you want to learn anything about our work, um, we, have, we do extensive work in the anti-surveillance space uh, and copyright intellectual property. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we have a new project on uh, antitrust and how to champion user rights in our digital age. Well, thank you very much. This is a very important nomination, and we appreciate the EFS works and insights in this regard. So um, thank you again and for joining us. Um, sadly, I, I have to um, issue a, another in memoriam, uh, a colleague of ours from the uh, California um, Bar Lawyer Association IP section. Um, he passed away at the age of 41. Chris Lockhart um, was taken by cancer, and there's a really nice tribute by his wife in The Athletic, and uh, you can see the show notes for details on that, but our sympathies go to Chris and his family. It's just uh, he's a nice guy. It's, it's sad to see him go so soon. So um, thank you again, Amy. And um, um, I mean, Camille, I'm sorry. Thank you, Camille. And uh, it's been great having you. And um, join us next week for another edition of Cyberlawn Business Report, only here on webmasterradio.fm. Have a good week, everyone. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of webmasterradio.fm. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.